Gracious and holy God, we enter into your presence filled with expectations. May the meditations of our hearts and minds and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. Amen. It was in 2008 that Kelly and I went with 36 of our church family friends to the Holy Land. It's a trip that I would love to repeat again with this church family, and we can talk about that at a later date. It was during that time when we were in this foreign world, by all uh, stretch of the imagination, it was a foreign world, and yet the stories of its history were my stories, the stories of my faith. And so I found this very strange world to be oddly familiar. One of the strangest things that we went to see was the Dead Sea. Not that the Dead Sea is all that strange, but what happens there is kind of odd. It is a tourist stop along the way, and so when we arrived, we uh, set to doing the things that tourists do in the Dead Sea. A little bit of background, the Dead Sea is this body of water in which the Jordan River flows into, but nothing flows out of. It is so salty, it is one of the saltiest bodies of water uh, in the whole world. It is so salty that nothing grows or sustains life within it. Nothing. Not even around it that you can see the remnants of the salt, saltiness of this body of water as it washes up on the shore and leaves everything desolate around it. A long time before Jesus, the Egyptians realized the importance of this salt and they would travel long distances from Egypt all the way to the Dead Sea to collect the salt from the shores and use it in their mummification rituals. The, uh, it also was, has health-restoring capabilities. And so in the time of the great Herods, Herod the Great and his sons, they often would make journeys down to the Dead Sea and they'd have a spa day, if you will, living in the resort waters of the Dead Sea. When we arrived there, I realized that the, the body of water is so dense, it is so dark, though it is... Uh, at different times of the day has different colors of blue and blacks and greens. But it is so dense that, that as you walk out into the sea, you cannot see very deep below you. The, the smell there is somewhat like being on a seashore. You can smell the salt, but you can also smell the source of decay around you. I'm not sure if that was because of our modern pollution problem that we have, or if it's always been that way. Members of our group entered into the waters. Some of them scooped up the mud and, and put it on their bodies as a, as a wonderful exfoliation treatment so that they could go back feeling wonderfully refreshed. Others really had this goal in mind of taking that wonderful picture that we sometimes see of floating in the Dead Sea. You cannot sink in the Dead Sea, so those of you who do not float well in the swimming pool, try the Dead Sea. They would go out there and float, put their feet up and read a magazine and take a picture. But the funniest one was one of our members brought his fishing pole. And there he was, out on the point of a rock, and he was casting that pole out and reeling it in, and I thought, really, Doug? 
fishing in the Dead Sea, but to my surprise, he pulled out a fish. I later learned it was a little rubber fish, and he was doing it to see who might notice that. This visit to this world's saltiest sea came flooding back into my mind as I read today's passage and remembered how Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down among the people to teach about the core of Christian living. These teachings have become the basic descriptors of who we are as Christians in the world. And during the month of February, we're going to take a look at these basic tenets of Christian life. After Jesus begins the Beatitudes in the third person, blessed are those, he turns it to his disciples and he said, blessed are you, a more collective plural you. But when he states this today's uh, passage, Matthew uses this Greek word that is humius, which means you yourself. It's much more personal. You, yes, you. So as I read our passage this morning from Matthew's fifth chapter, verses 13 through 16, I want you to listen to what God might be saying to you this morning. You. Yes, you. Hear now God's word. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. May God add blessing to the reading of this holy scripture. Sometimes when I take a look at passages that are as familiar as salt and light, I start with what Jesus is not saying in order to unpack the depth and the meaning What Jesus is not saying is that you shall be salt. As if we somehow are responsible for becoming something salty. As if we are self-made salty through our achievements, goals, or recognitions in the world. This is not so much a statement of what we become. Most certainly, it is not a statement that we are responsible for anything that we become that has anything to do with saltiness in the world. It is not because of our own personal drive or achievement. Nor does he say we will be light, as if God is not through with us yet, though God is not through with us yet, as if God will shape us into some sort of light for future use, when we can be set up and light the world at some future reality, the completion of time, so to speak. Instead, Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Right now, already, you are. So what is it about salt and light, I began to ask myself, and I 
found a couple of things that were interesting to me. Both salt and light are God-given. They are not products of man's creation or doing. Though we have learned how to capture light in a light bulb, light is God's thing. It is nature, natural elements that we cannot reproduce. So as followers of Christ, we are not self-made. We are simply created to be salt and light of the world, created out of this pure grace that God gave to us because God so desired to give that to us. Neither salt nor light are rare. They're common. They are abundant. They're ordinary elements in the world. <laughs> For me, that says that followers of Jesus are valuable not because they deem we, we are deemed by the world as commodities worthy of being traded. We are, are not salt and light because we are so rare and precious and costly. No, we're rather common, ordinary, humble elements in the world. Abundant elements. There's a lot of us. Salt and light, however, are essential to life. They are life-giving. It is salt that not only gives us the excitement of taste, but preservation and fertilization. It is a nutrient that our human body uses in order to sustain ourselves. Light is not only used to help us find our way in the darkness and through the darkness, to light our paths through life, but it is also uh, essential for growth, plant growth, and other species. It is essential to the creation and procreation of many things in our world. Both salt and light are the good things of the world, and their value is found only in their usefulness. Only in their usefulness. As ordinary salt and light, our job, our call then, friends, is to be beneficial, to be useful, to be life-giving elements in the world. To the extent that we are able to stay focused and true to this call to be salt and light, because God has created us that way, is exactly what Jesus said will give God the glory will give God the glory and bring about justice and hope in a world that so desperately needs it. Jesus is getting, my friends, to this inner part of us, an inner holiness. And this inner holiness that Jesus says manifests itself in an outward acts of holiness, which preserve, acts that nourish, acts that guide and enrich the world. It got me to thinking about a march for the salt. Some of you might remember from your history books, uh, uh, Mahatma Gandhi in 1930 had this march against the salt tax. Gandhi lived in India where they were colonized by the British government and he was pushing against that colonization so that they could gain freedoms again. And 
one of the things that they did was tax the salt. They taxed it in such a way that they said that, and they made it unlawful for anybody to buy it from anybody other than British manufacturers of salt. And if you, if you tried to manufacture it yourself, you could be um, arrested and persecuted for that. It was against the law. And when Gandhi decided to push against uh, resistance and do it in a peaceful way, he chose this salt tax as his means. And the reason he did is because this salt cuts across all economic uh, and social stratifications. It, it cuts across the caste system that was in place even in their own uh, culture. And it cut across political lines. Because everyone, everyone is dependent upon salt, especially in that very rich, humid uh, part of the world. So Gandhi and 78 of his followers began to march from one place down to uh, a city on the Sea of Arabian, the Arabian Sea, and they uh, took that march. It took them about 12 days to go uh, 240 miles. As they walked, they walked 12 miles a day and they walked through villages talking about this need to be resistant against the powers that oppress in nonviolent ways. And every time he stopped at a village to speak and to talk, more people joined this march until finally there were hundreds of thousands of people, at least 100,000 they said. In fact, one uh, uh, reporter said that the, the march itself was about a quarter of a mile wide and even uh, two miles long. Thousands of journalists came from around the world and they were on hand when Gandhi got to that city by the sea and committed his symbolic crime. First he went out into the water and he bathed and then he came up on the shore where, where the British had made sure that the salt pebbles and and clumps of salt had been broken up into the sand so much that he might not be able to find it, but it didn't take him long. He simply reached down into the mud and pulled it up and used the water to wash away the mud. And then he found it, just a pinch, just a pinch of salt. And he held it up and said, today is the day. That was, that was the point in which many others began to harvest the salt for themselves. And over the course of the next couple of weeks, 60,000 people were arrested for this holy act of justice, stressing Gandhi's point that salt occurs quite naturally in God's given earth. God's good world makes salt, and it is essential for life and should not be monopolized by any single power. Now, something else happened on that pilgrimage. What happened there was in the time that Gandhi spoke to the people, he also used it as an avenue to cast light on the injustice of their Indian caste system, a system where certain people were considered untouchable. What he did when he went into these villages is he drank from the same water. He bathed with those who were considered by society to be untouchable. And in one point, he even would not start the speech until those 
people were allowed to sit among all people equally in the listening area. In those 24 days, Gandhi demonstrated compassion, mercy, and he shed light on injustice, bringing grace everywhere he went. Now, Gandhi did not call himself a Christian. However, he was well-practiced in Christian living, and that was observed in an interview that he acknowledged just before his death. His example for peaceful resistance of, of injustice has been a source of light to the world. That source is God's pure grace at work within us, that same grace that invites you and me to be the salt and the light of the earth. It is not developed by our own hands, friends. It is not even given to us at some future point. It instead exists now in this place, right now, here in the hearts of each of you. Jesus said that no one in their right mind would hide a light under a bushel or a basket or even our own insecurities or even the insecurities of society. Instead, Jesus said, be light. Let it shine on your good works so that God might be glorified. So friends, take out your light. Sing with me. Amen.